Welcome back to the Vine Church podcast. Today we are continuing our sermon series, Building Back Better, exploring the book of Haggai. If you haven't already, you can find us on YouTube at the Vine Church Odium and Church Crookham, and would love to have you join us over there. Well, hi everybody. Um, let's read Haggai, Haggai chapter 2, and it's our final three verses in this wonderful little book of Haggai. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. Tell Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, that I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and shatter the power of the foreign kingdoms. I will overthrow chariots and their drivers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord Almighty, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord Almighty. So, we're coming into land, and these verses at the very end of Haggai are not just kind of a, oh, by the way, I forgot to mention. This is Haggai's fourth sermon, and actually, as he brings it, it's almost what the whole book has been building up to. It's the climax of the whole prophecy. Uh, now, I sent out a request this week for people to send in their names and the meaning of their names. And thank you very much for those of you who sent in your names. I've got a little video, uh, which I'm going to play. One or two sent me on Saturday. I wasn't able to include them because we finished the video on Friday. But let's have a look. What is your name and what does it mean? My name is Zoe and my name means life in Greek. Hi, my name's Victoria. It means victorious. Surprise, surprise. Hi, Andy. My name is David. It means beloved. My name is Daniel, which means God is my judge. My name is Phoebe, and it means radiant or shining one. My name is Nathaniel, and uh, my name originates from the Hebrew Netanel which means God has given. Hi Andy, my name is Philip and it means lover of horses. Hello, my name is Sue. My name means to institute legal proceedings against a person or institution, typically for redress. Now then, imagine if you'd been given a name that meant something not very nice. I mean, for example, did you know that the name Cecilia actually means blind. I mean, what a name to have, hey? Or imagine if your name was Desdemona. I mean, if it's not bad enough that you're just called Desdemona, I'm sorry if someone out there is actually called that. Uh, because actually, do you know that in Greek, it means of the devil or ill-fated one? Oh dear. Imagine if you had been given a name that really was not a very positive description. Well, the guy that we're looking at this morning is called Zerubbabel. And the name Zerubbabel actually means seed of Babylon or born of Babylon. His very name reminded him of the exile, the failure of God's people. 
Because of their sin over the centuries, God had finally had enough of them and turfed them out of Judea. The Babylonians had destroyed Solomon's temple, deposed the king, deported the people. They'd gone into exile. Zerubbabel was the grandson of an immigrant born in Babylon. His identity was seed of Babylon, born in Babylon. Effectively, his name kind of meant failure. Whenever his name was, was pronounced, he would kind of think, people would think of the pain of the exile. They're not supposed to be in Babylon. Imagine if your name was failure. You know, every time someone called you, it's like, hey, pain, failure. Uh, it would be so encouraging, wouldn't it? Poor Zerubbabel. What else do we know about Zerubbabel? Well, he was, in fact, the great-great-great-great-grandson, times by 16, of King David. Remember David? David, we read about him in 2 Samuel chapter 7, don't we? God makes a great promise to King David. He says to him this, Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from following the flock, to be ruler. I will make your name great. I will establish a house for you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, that was King David, and he was, of course, a great king. And God made great promises about him. Sometimes the picture that was used to describe the king was a picture of a signet ring. Now, I don't know if you know what a signet ring was, but it was basically a ring that a king would wear close to their body so that it could not be stolen or taken or be used mischievously by anybody else. And on this ring, there would be an insignia or an image, and it would be used to print onto wax or onto clay. So that when an edict went out or when a letter went out, it was sealed with the king's insignia. It has his authority. It was a sign of the authority of the king. You might remember, for example, in the story of Esther, that the wicked Haman, the enemy of the people of God, managed to get hold of King Xerxes' signet ring. And he was able to use it by, to issue evil decrees against God's people because he had the ring, he had the authority of the king, he could do and say what he wanted because effectively he was the representative of the king when he had the king's signet ring. And so, it, so it's, it's a sign of being a plenipotentiary, a person invested with full power of independent action on the king's behalf. Now, God describes the kings, his kings, the king of Israel, as a signet ring. In other words, they are, the king is God's personal representative. God's plenipotentiary, the person who has the authority of God on earth to represent God perfectly to the people and to have the authority of God upon him. David was such a person. And under him, of course, for a brief time at least, there was a golden age for the people of God. But things went downhill 
after King David, as generation after generation disobeyed God until finally we get to the last king of Judah, Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim, also known as Jeconiah, he was supposed to be uh, a representative of God, the signet ring of God, but we read in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 24, In Jeremiah 22 and verse 24, God says to Jeconiah uh, this, As surely as I live, even you, Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring. If you were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. I will hand you over to those who seek your life, those you fear, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to the Babylonians, I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born, and there you will both die. You will never come back to the land you long to return. Is this man Jehoiakim a despised, broken pot, an object no one wants? I mean, what a terrible thing for poor Jehoiakim to hear. He was told that... God was taking him off of his hands. He was no longer God's signet ring. He was no longer God's representative. He was fired. You're fired, Jehoiakim. He was sacked by God. He was demoted. He was no longer God's signet ring. Instead, he would be despised. He would be hurled into another country. He would be like a broken pot, an object that nobody wanted. Now, that was Jehoiakim. And of course, he went as the last king of Judah into exile, how the mighty have fallen, a famous and feared family line, now an object that nobody wants. And so the family settled in Babylon, and Jehoiakim had a son, called Shealtiel, and Shealtiel had a son called Zerubbabel, our man, Zerubbabel. So Zerubbabel had been born in Babylon. That's his identity, born in Babylon. And he has this history. He's the son, the grandson of a guy who was sacked by God, the grandson of a guy who was rejected who was an object of scorn. Zerubbabel, although he is still in the royal line, he has no real authority or position. He's in exile, a son of Babylon. But one day, imagine that Zerubbabel hears a rumour. Hey, there's a new king of Persia, Cyrus. And he has decreed that the Jews can return to their homeland, build their temple. And of course, some of the people, the remnant of Israel, decide that they will go back to Judah to help build this temple. And then Zerubbabel is called in by maybe one of the officials or by Cyrus himself, perhaps, and told, Zerubbabel, we know that you were, your family line were rulers in this this group of people. So we're promoting you to governor. We'd like you to be the leader of the district council. You can go back to Judah and you can help the people to settle there and you can supervise the building of the temple. And so he goes back, Zerubbabel, 
For the first 18 years, to be honest, it's a bit of a disaster. He doesn't do a terribly good job, Zerubbabel. He doesn't get the temple built. It's still not really happening. Until August the 29th, 520 BC, after a particularly bad harvest, the prophet Haggai stands up and delivers four sermons over four months. And we've looked at the first three of those sermons, and we could summarize them like this, kingdom priorities. The first sermon on the 29th of August said this, give priority to God's house as well as and above your own house. The second sermon delivered on the 21st of September was kingdom perspectives. Don't be discouraged, said Haggai. Step back and see the bigger picture. God has always been with us, his people, in the past. He is with us right now, and he will be with us in the future, so keep going. The third message, which Haggai shared on the 18th of December, 520, was kingdom purity. Haggai said to the people, look, God isn't content with you merely cleaning up the temple site. Even more so, he wants you to clean up your hearts and lives. He doesn't just want a renewed temple, he wants a renewed people. He wants your love, he wants your allegiance, he wants your devotion, he wants you. And now Zerubbabel delivers his fourth and final sermon. On the same day as the third one, on the 18th of December, and this sermon is, if you like, kingdom promises. And so he gives this sermon, but what's interesting about this sermon is that it is only spoken directly to Zerubbabel, the governor. The other ones had been addressed to Zerubbabel, Joshua, all the people. This one is just addressed directly to Zerubbabel. I mean, imagine what Zerubbabel would be thinking at this moment in time. Uh, try, by the way, try and say Zerubbabel three times in a row without tripping up. I've just realized it's quite difficult. But uh, imagine how he would feel. Haggai says, uh, Zerubbabel, I've got to have a word with you. I've got a message for you. Imagine if the headmaster called you into his room. You know, you're thinking, oh, no, what's he going to say to me? If the boss calls you in, what's she going to say to me? And maybe Zerubbabel's thinking, hmm, maybe Haggai will say, Hey, Zerubbabel, son of Babylon, grandson of that despised broken pot, Jehoiakim, what have you achieved these past 20 years? Not much. Look at the temple. What a disgrace. You're supposed to be the leader. Perhaps that's what he's going to say. But instead, Haggai delivers this mind-blowing, astonishing, unbelievable set of promises to Zerubbabel personally. The people would have heard the message and they would have taken courage from it too. But it was an incredible message of grace and of promise for the people of God. And it was kind of divided into two sections, if you like. First of all, verses 21 and 22. The first bit of the promise is this. Tell Zerubbabel, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones, shatter the power of foreign kingdoms, overthrow chariots and their drivers, horses and their riders will fall. And so the first message is kind of a revolutionary message. 
I don't know if you've ever heard of Samitstat. It's a type of Russian secret literature that was written. During the communist era, the KGB controlled the production of typewriters. Typewriters, when they came out of the factories in Russia, each of them had their own micro feature, their little fingerprint, so that the KGB could trace who had written a document. And then if you'd written something that was against the communist philosophy and regime, then you could be traced and dealt with. And so there were people who wanted to write against, who were dissidents, who wrote things against the communist regime, and they had to write it by hand, and they had to send it out secretly. It was kind of revolutionary information that they would send out. Vladimir Bukovsky summarized Samizdat literature as, as follows. Samizdat, he said, I write it myself, I edit it myself, I censor it myself, I publish it myself, I distribute it myself, and I spend time in prison for it myself. Well, what Haggai is saying to Zerubbabel here is kind of revolutionary. The Persians should be worried because what he says is God is about to shake up the powers that be. Persia might seem like a mighty superpower right now, but it will come and go. God is not phased by human powers. He's bigger. It reminds us of the picture that Daniel had. Do you remember Daniel had that picture of a statue with the head and the shoulders and the waist and the legs and the feet? And then there's this picture. Each bit represents a different empire that's going to come and go. And then there's this stone that's going to smash this statue and it's going to crumble. But this stone will grow into a mighty mountain that will endure forever, the kingdom of God. And the message to Daniel and the message to Zerubbabel here is this. Yeah, the Babylonians will come and go. The Persians will come and go. The Greeks will pass. The Romans will rise and fall. But God's kingdom, though it starts small, will grow into a mighty mountain that will last forever. Listen, folks, do you know all authority, all worldviews, all principalities and powers and worldly systems will pass. You know, we have some pretty ungodly worldviews around power bases and systems. And yet, God is not phased by any of them. He is bigger than all of them. And so Haggai says to Zerubbabel, I will shake them, I will overthrow them, I will overturn them. So Zerubbabel is listening to this and he's thinking, well, that's cool, but what's that got to do with me? I mean, I'm just a humble provincial governor. I mean, what are you saying, Haggai? And then in verse 23, Haggai says this. You, I will take you, my servant Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you my, like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. Wow. He says, Lord, the Lord Almighty, three times he says, the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty will take you, my servants. That's echoes of 
of Isaiah speaking about the servant who would come, God's confidant, God's trusted servant who would come. It's a code name for the Messiah. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, I have chosen you. Zerubbabel, you're the special one. You will be my signet ring. Zerubbabel has been promoted. His grandfather was demoted and rejected, but Zerubbabel is reinstated. The covenant is renewed and Zerubbabel is given the status of God's signet ring. Protected on God's finger so that no one can touch him and everyone must obey him. Wow, what a day for Zerubbabel, hey? I mean, his identity as a seed of Babylon, his history of failure and disaster, really, and nothingness, and yet God says, I'm taking hold of you, Zerubbabel. I have chosen you. I have called you and I'm making you my signet ring. What a turnaround. Isn't this the grace of God? Don't you think that this is incredible? God's undeserved, unmerited favour and grace upon this guy's life. Given a new identity, made a chosen servant of God, whisked out of the old kingdom, out of his past, and brought into this new kingdom, reminded again who he is, reminded of his history, reminded of his identity in God, reminded of his fantastic destiny in God as well. And he doesn't have to do anything. It just kind of happens to him. God just says, this is what I'm doing for you, Zerubbabel. It's going to happen. Despite yourself, whatever you think about yourself and your identity, Do you know, isn't that how God works with us? Isn't that the grace of God? Isn't that the gospel, folks? God takes hold of us, doesn't he? He speaks to us. He declares us no longer sons of sin, sons of Adam, but sons of God. Chosen. Given a new identity. Given a new destiny. Reminded of our history being told that, hey, we get to be a part of the thing that God is doing in the world. Wow, what a privilege to be God's own people, to be his signet ring, close to him, protected by him, powerful in him. And it's all by grace. Whatever your past, whatever your failures, whatever your disappointments, yet God says, my covenant is with you and I have chosen you. Now, before we finish, let's just ask an honest question. Did this actually happen to Zerubbabel? And the answer is, not really. I mean, kind of, but kind of not. Let me explain. I mean, yes, he did get to supervise the rebuilding of the temple. Four years later, he got to put the capstone on the temple to cut the ribbon, if you like, to shouts of joy. The job was done. And Zerubbabel did go down in the Jewish Hall of Fame. But after that, that's about it. 
In his lifetime, he certainly didn't see the overthrow of all the powers and authorities with his throne established with him as the, as the king, this great Messiah king that was kind of promised here. But actually, God was speaking to Zerubbabel not just about him as a person, but about his what would come from him, the history that would follow, or the, the people that would follow from him, the person that would follow from him, his legacy from his line. You see, God had a bigger plan for Zerubbabel than he could have ever imagined for himself. And Zerubbabel was building something far bigger than he realized. But for now, the Royal River disappears underground. We hear very little of his family, his children. For 500 years, the river is underground, barely in sight at all. Until 500 years later, this royal river bursts forth onto the scene again. Jesus great David's greater son, appears. We read in Matthew, if you were to look at the genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, what you'll see is this. In, verses one, in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, that after the exile to, to Babylon, there is Jehoiakim, the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, and then it goes family, family, generation after generation, until we get to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Zerubbabel's great, 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 great grandson is Jesus. The servant of God, the son of God, the chosen one, the signet ring of God, the radiance of God, the exact representation of God's being with all the authority of God because he is God. And in weakness on the cross, he overcomes sin. In power at his resurrection, he disarms every worldly principality, power and system that sets itself up against God. That at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Iahini was praying earlier. So you see, Zerubbabel was caught up into something much bigger than himself. He gets to play his part in this great history of God's plan for the world. He has a wonderful identity, an amazing destiny. Imagine after that how Zerubbabel felt about himself. Seed of Babylon, grandfather rejected, but now, whoa, he realizes who he is. He realizes what God has done to get hold of him. And as he rises early each day, as he goes to work, as he holds the plumb, plumb line up at the temple, as he supervises the men, each and every humdrum day, he is building. He is building something bigger than he realizes. The people too, this remnant people, these weak people, but they've heard this message to Zerubbabel. They know God is with us. God has renewed his covenant with us. He's not finished with us. 
He's not finished with the church, even when the technical stuff goes completely wrong. He has not finished with his people. And whatever we do, it's by his grace. He's sticking to his plan. The Messiah has come and he will fulfill everything that he has been sent to accomplish. Don't you think that helps us? Don't you think that helps you as you get up each day, as you raise your kids? You know, we don't realize how much we are investing in something much bigger than we think. As we invest in our kids and raise them up, you don't know what you are doing in God's kingdom, but God knows. As you invest in schools, as you go in and you shape young lives, as you influence the next generation, you have no idea what the implications of that are. God is at work. As you go on mission, as you reach out into the Middle East, as you, whatever it is you're called to do, as you go to work, as you are salt and light in your workplace, you are doing far more than you realize you are doing. As you witness for Jesus to those around around, you're actually part of something much bigger than yourself, much bigger than your own little lives. God is at work in us, and it's all by grace. We have been chosen. We have been called. God has taken us to himself, and he will help us. He will protect us. He will provide for us. He has made promises to us. And so we can be patient, we can keep building, we can keep trusting, we can keep knowing we are part of something much, much, much bigger than ourselves. And so be encouraged, folks. As we round out Haggai today, it's such a huge way that this book finishes, reminding Zerubbabel, that God is with him. God will fulfill his plans in your everyday lives as you go through just day after day. Do you know you're part of something? You're part, your identity, you're no longer a son of Babylon. You're a son of God. This is, I've gone off the script now, I'm supposed to be finishing. But you aren't, you're no longer, your past is your past, but God has forgotten it. And he has given you a new identity in him and a new future and a new calling in him. So let's pray together as we finish. Lord God, we thank you that you have called us. We thank you for your grace towards us. And I pray for every person as they're watching this morning that you would strengthen them in their faith, that you would remind them that you have called them and chosen them, given them a new identity. Oh God, help us, oh God. Help us to keep doing our part, playing our part in our homes, in our communities, in our church, in our nation. Because, oh God, you are about a great work. And your son will be glorified in all the earth. Be with us all as we go from here, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.